Okay, so let's start. You want to take me back to October 24th, 1929 and set the scene a little bit? What was going on? So on October 24th, 1929, the stock market woke up to uh, horrible news. Stocks were falling so fast that the ticker could not even keep up. People were selling so many stocks. Nobody had any idea what anything cost. A lot of people thought there was just going to be this huge, tremendous panic and this crash that would just continue and continue. But then at around 12 o'clock, heading into the afternoon, things started to get better. There were a few bankers who went into the House of Morgan, this two-story gray building across from the New York Stock Exchange, where J.P. Morgan had its offices at the time. Mm -hmm. And they kind of got together and they said, hey, let's just start buying a lot of stock and that'll infuse more confidence (laughs) into the market. And somehow it worked. By the afternoon, prices had kind of stabilized and things were looking up. And so obviously the press is, you know, fascinated by everything that's going on and they want to talk to these bankers. And there were four of them. There was J.P. Morgan Jr., Thomas Lamont, Albert Wigan, and most importantly, Charles E. Mitchell. Mitchell was the head of Citibank, which was the largest bank in the country at the time. And we know it today as Citigroup. Mm. But so a reporter asked him what he thought of the day. And Mitchell said, quote, I still see nothing to worry about. (laughs) But as we know, almost 100 years later, that was Black Thursday. A few days later, we had Black Monday and we had Black Tuesday. I'm Mark Dent. And I'm Zachary Crockett. You're listening to the Hustle Daily Show Sunday edition. Ordinarily, in this podcast, we fill you in on the latest business and tech news. Today, we're doing something a little different. We're going to go back 100 years, and we're going to talk about one guy who many experts say was more responsible for causing the 1929 stock crash than any other person. His name was Charles E. Mitchell. There's no secret formula for better customer service, but there is the all-new service hub from HubSpot, bringing service and support together in one powerful platform so you could deliver the best experiences possible and free up a rep's time with an AI-powered help desk. Also, you can easily support and grow your customer base. Secrets out, everybody. Service Hub is a game changer. Visit HubSpot.com service to learn more. All right, Mark, to start us off here, before we talk about Charles E. Mitchell, the man, Let's step back and talk about what was going on in the U.S. economy in the early 1900s. We had this kind of big run-up in the stock market, right? Right. The 1920s, the roaring 20s, as we know them, were like a fantastic time for money. It just seemed like it just was going to keep accumulating forever and ever. And it was interesting because there wasn't really like this rise of the middle class yet. That would obviously happen quite a few decades later. But there was kind of a rise of like, upper income people. There were more people getting rich than who had ever gotten rich before. That was in large part because business was picking up so much, right? The automobile was taking off, household appliances were taking off. So there were a lot of ways to make good money. But more importantly, um, for the people who really started to cash in, there were ways to make money that had nothing to do with making things, right? Mm. It was all about selling pieces of paper on the stock market. And there was just so much confidence in it because the Federal Reserve had been recently created a few years before, and that allowed people to just feel a bit better about the economy. And then the fact that people were buying a lot more goods, you know, companies were starting to do better. So some of that was authentic. But what we saw just really was not authentic, right? (laughs) The Dow Jones around 1920 
was worth maybe a hundred bucks or so. And it went all the way to $400 by 1929. Okay. Nine years, 4X increase, a lot of new wealth created in America. And at the center of all of this was Citibank, one of the big banks in New York City. Tell us a little bit about what Citibank was doing at the time. What role were they playing in this run-up? So Citibank originally was kind of like any other regular bank. They had been around for a long time already by this point. And what they had previously done was acted as a place where people could deposit money. Mm -hmm. They would give loans. Their clients did tend to be wealthy, and oftentimes they would be bankers for corporations. So they weren't exactly like a Main Street mom and pop bank or something like that. But nevertheless, they still actually did the same types of activities as any kind of regular bank. But around 1916, Citibank tried to kind of change the way it was doing things. And in addition to just being this regular bank, you know, that had deposits and and loans and, and whatnot, they opened an investment subsidiary. Hmm. And it was technically this kind of like separate affiliate, but they was all under the same branch of what we'll just call National City Bank. And so now it was this kind of like two-headed monster, if you will. There was like the traditional bank part, and then there was the part that wanted to sell securities. Mm. They wanted to sell stocks and bonds. They would make money. They'd take a cut when they sold somebody a stock or a bond. Hmm. And so therefore, they had a lot of incentive to sell those things. All right. So here's where our guy comes in, Charles E. Mitchell. How is he involved at City? So Mitchell was the guy who was hired to lead that investment affiliate. Mm -hmm. That was his first job for Citi. And then a few years later, in the early 1920s, he was named president of the entire operation. So he oversaw everything at Citibank. Mm -hmm. And so Citi was both kind of revolutionary in that it had this like investment banking branch and a regular banking branch. But also in that they just tried to popularize banking altogether. Before Mitchell came along, people saw banks as these like really scary places, you know? We've probably seen them in like old movies, like where someone goes in and they get denied for a loan by some, you know, mean guy in a suit, right? (laughs) With a handlebar mustache or something. That's exactly what banks were like. But Mitchell didn't want them to be like that. He started to open a lot more branches, at least 69 branches in 58 cities in the 1920s. Hmm. And he would like advertise in magazines, on billboards, and he'd have salesmen go off onto train stations and into churches to get people to be clients of his bank. And they wanted to make it, as one reporter noted at the time, it seemed like a department store Hmm. where they almost catered to these customers and made them feel good. So this strategy really paid off for Citi. In the 1920s, they sold $20 billion worth of securities. And according to archives, that was the highest total in the country at the time. What impact does this have on Mitchell the man? Well, Mitchell gets loaded. He makes (laughs) a lot of money, to say the least. In this decade, more or less, he amassed a $20 million fortune, which is roughly $250 million today. Mm. He was making the equivalent of around $430,000 per year in salary, but he was also making a lot of bonuses. So uh, like when I said that, you know, City was making bank off of selling securities and stocks. So they had like this sort of pool for their employees mm. and especially for their like executive type of employees. And they could make these incredible bonuses. So he was making around $3 million a year in 1920s dollars in the last couple of years of the 20s, which is more like $58 million today. 
So off of bonuses, he was absolutely cashing in. Hmm. And Citibank, like I said, it, it became the nation's largest bank. Mitchell was able to buy homes in the Hamptons, Tuxedo Park. And then he had this opulent mansion that was built for him bordering Central Park in Midtown Manhattan. Hmm. You have to like see it almost to believe it of how <laughs> lavish this thing was. And a couple of his children were on a PBS documentary kind of discussing a little bit of that era and what it was like. And they were saying that there was a staff of 16 living help that was present at that mansion at all times. And that did not include the chauffeurs. So there was even more. Okay. So City is going off. Mitchell is popping off. He's wealthy beyond any stretch of the imagination. But also more broadly, the American economy is humming along. It's doing very well. But what's going on under the surface here? Yeah. Is this built on a solid foundation? It was not built on a solid foundation at all. Robert McIlvain, who's a professor at Millsaps College and one of the foremost experts on the depression in the country, told me that he likes to refer to what was happening in the 1920s as the great bullshit market. <laughs> okay. And so what was kind of underlying the market, there was a few things. The first was in terms of what was going on in the economy at large, like there actually was starting to be some issues with all these cars and refrigerators and other appliances that were being built. Hmm. Everybody kind of bought them hmm. because wealth was so segregated. There was still just a lot of rich people and and largely a lot of lower income people. And so there's really not many people to buy all these things anymore. Hmm. So that was one concern. But in terms of the stock market itself, like there were a lot bigger concerns and Citibank was at the heart of them. Yeah. And so when you had this new sort of form of banking where you tried to get regular people who were your regular bank customers to start investing and make them feel good about all that, uh, you know, that was just one thing that was kind of worrisome in its own regard. But Citi wouldn't just do that. They also wanted to help people buy even more stocks than mm. they could afford. And they did that through margin loans. Mm. So somebody would buy a stock for like 10% of the cost and then they'd borrow the rest with interest. And this was fine as long as the stock went up. And same with another sort of tactic that was going on that Citibank and other banks were involved in, which were investment pools. And these were more or less like pump and dump schemes, like the kind of thing you'd see on the Wolf of Wall Street or the Boiler Room. Sure. And what they would do is a group of really, really rich and powerful people would get together and they'd start buying a stock for a company. Sometimes even they'd like have the company go public, if you will, and they would mm. be like the first stock offering and they'd all get to buy in and it would just go up, of course. Then they'd have it for sale to regular people and they'd sell immediately right after mm. they made a profit. But again, as long as things kept going up, nobody really cared, right? It seemed like everything was working. Sure. And these margin loans became increasingly popular. It wasn't just some fringe thing that was happening in the 1920s. In the early 1920s, you write that there was about a billion dollars invested in margin annually. That grew to $6 billion in 1928. So six times increase over four years. The market is a little bit over leveraged, to put it mildly. Yeah. And there was also kind of just this general attitude that stocks could only go up. You know, it was kind of the precursor to that quote that we've seen floating around today. It's what everybody believed. And that was in no small part because people like Charles E. Mitchell would go to the newspapers and say how good things were <laughs> over and over and over. He would do that. So would some of the other top bankers, but people believed them because bankers 
you know, these days it's kind of hard to look back and just think, oh, okay, like I'll, I'll believe that guy. Right. But there wasn't yet all these controversies involving bankers. So they were truly seen as these kind of almost neutral arbiters of excellence, right? Like the, <laughs> they had discipline and they were at it to like do things for the good of the American people. Hey, everybody, I got a great podcast to tell you about. It's called Truth, Lies, and Work, and it's brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. On this show, you can join husband and wife team Alan, Leanne Elliott as they dispel myths, impart wisdom, and answer all your questions about finding, keeping, and motivating great people. They actually just did an episode with John Smith, who is the manager and agent of famous Argentinian soccer player Diego Maradona. He talks about in this episode how he was able to manage the global superstar athlete celebrity that Maradona is and was. It's a great listen. You better get out there and check it out. And you can listen to Truth, Lies, and Work wherever you get your podcasts. All right. So Mitchell is gallivanting around doing damage control, telling everyone, look, it's okay. The market's over leveraged. What happens from there? Well, what happened were those historic days that we know about Black Thursday, Black Monday, Gosh. Black Tuesday. It was just kind of where for months, really, things had been kind of teetering back and forth. And this is where Mitchell's involvement gets really, really into the thick of it. In the spring, the Federal Reserve had been trying to tamp down on some of this hysteria and margin loans and things like that. But when they started to do that, that's when stocks started to drop. And so then Mitchell announced that he would provide $25 million to shore up the margin loans market mm. so people could keep borrowing. And so that's what people did. They just kept borrowing and borrowing. And then by late October, it was just kind of like when those stocks started falling on that Thursday morning of Black Thursday, it leads to this cascade. If stocks go down, then a margin call has to get made. If a margin call has to get made, somebody has to sell Jeez. because that's the only way they can pay back their loan. Mm. So then other people sell because they see those people selling. And it just happened over and over and over. And it stung more like average investors mm. for the first couple of days. But then by the next week, it was really just stinging everybody. Even the big cats lost, you know, people like Mitchell, like they lost big money. Right. And once the fat cats start losing money, people start paying attention. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what, what kind of losses are we talking about? There was an estimated $14 billion lost on Black Tuesday alone. That is in 1929 dollars. My gosh. Okay. I feel like if I punch that into an inflation calculator, it's going to break the calculator. That's a lot of money. <laughs> yes. Okay. So what happens essentially is we arrive at this great moment of reckoning in the market. We see this huge decline. How is Mitchell dealing with all of this? Well, Mitchell, as I mentioned, he lost. He lost big of his own kind of personal fortune from the crash because when he was whispering sweet nothings in reporters' <laughs> ears to say how good this market was, it was likely that he was not really being dishonest because he kept all of his money in the market and mm -hmm. kind of kept buying in too. He just happened to be really wrong. <laughs> but Citibank, they kept him on. He remained president. So it's not like he had to go and just kind of live on the street or something like that. And there was some animosity directed toward him in the weeks and months afterwards, and including from some politicians. Sure. But nothing much happened. There was a congressional hearing in 1932, and he made it through that unscathed. And it just seemed like he was going to be completely fine. Maybe not quite as wealthy as he once was, but still very wealthy and still working for Citibank. Sure. And this is the point in the story where we introduce our second character. Charles E. Mitchell meets his nemesis, this guy named Ferdinand Pecora. 
Where does he come into the story, Mark? After that original congressional hearing in 1932 that was pretty unsuccessful, the politicians decided wisely to find someone else to interrogate the bankers in Washington, D.C., and they chose Ferdinand Pecor for that. He was kind of like this cigar-smoking, <laughs> fedora-wearing New York City prosecutor, mm. and he liked to call the bank executives banksters because <laughs> he saw them as finance gangsters. Nice. And he was a guy who was not going to just try and look good. Like when politicians are there on Capitol Hill and trying to get testimony out of people, they ask very self-serving questions. Mm -hmm. He was not going to do that. He was going to nail them. That's what he wanted to do. Hmm. So he basically initiates a Senate hearing. What happens at the Senate hearing? So Mitchell is called on the first big day of testimony. And Pecora had kind of had some conversations with him beforehand. He'd done a lot of research on Citibank. So he really knew his stuff. And immediately, he could tell that it was going to be challenging. He later wrote in his book, Pecora did, about Mitchell, that throughout his testimony, that Mitchell assumed the loftiest moral tone, no matter how questionable the <laughs> transactions were that he was being asked about. This testimony lasted for you know a few hours, but he was able slowly to kind of just sort of penetrate and kind of catch him off guard because his questions were so pointed. And what happened was he got Mitchell to admit that Citibank was engaged in a practice that it, quote, should not be doing regarding this one sort of stock pool, aka those things that are similar to pump and dump schemes. Sure. And then he also just got Mitchell to really like explain the regular business practice of Citi which, as we were talking about earlier, they had opened this new investment affiliate and then they had their regular kind of banking affiliate. Mm. So they kind of like married the two together, even though they were supposed to be these separate entities. So customers who would just go into their regular bank would be kind of persuaded to buy stocks. Mm. And that was just kind of like the way that Citi made a lot of money and also got people to be involved in these kind of risky gambles. But most of all, what he got Mitchell to do, perhaps that was the most damaging, was he basically got him to admit that Citibank was not a moral neutral arbiter hmm. when it came to this stuff. They barely even did their due diligence on a lot of the stocks they were selling. And when they did, they often hid it from their customers. Hmm. So this seems like it's set up in a perfect way to make an example out of one of the architects of the stock crash. But unfortunately, it turned out like many banker Senate hearings tend to go. Yeah, it made headlines for a few months. You know, Pecora got on the cover of Time magazine hmm. and Mitchell did lose his job at Citibank as a result of this. And, hmm. and that was in part because in addition to all those kind of damaging things that were really bad for the banking industry, Mitchell also point blank admitted that he engaged in tax evasion. Jeez. And to again kind of show that there wasn't like a whole lot of repercussions for him, he was found not guilty hmm. when he was criminally charged with that tax evasion and ended up having to pay an undisclosed sort of settlement because of it. But that was it. Hmm. And then once Mitchell lost his job with Citibank, he got a new job wow. with an investment company and was able to move out west to California and start life anew and make a lot more money. Wow. And ultimately, a few good things did come out of this. The Glass-Steagall Act was signed in 1933 that banned banks from acting as a commercial and investment entities basically what Citi had been doing all along. Uh, and also the 1933 Securities Act passed that sort of held banks to the table in, in terms of disclosing more information on the securities that they sold and the types of assets that they peddled. So a few good things did come out of the broader market crash of 1929. But today, 
a lot of historians still regard Charles E. Mitchell as one of the chief architects of not only the crash, but the Great Depression, <laughs> right? Right. The, the crash really signaled the beginning of the Great Depression. The Depression, all those factors, especially with regarding people not like buying things anymore. And we had all this like leftover supply because of it. That was like a, a large reason why the Great Depression happened. But the thing that really got people to realize that all that was about to happen was the stock crash. Hmm. And it was Senator Carter Glass who said, Mitchell, more than any 50 men, is responsible for this crash. Hmm. And there's definitely an argument to be made that, hey, maybe he was just a scapegoat. But the bottom line is that he was in charge of the largest bank in the country at the time. And as we talked about earlier, he was really kind of changing the way people thought about banks and really promoting and encouraging customers to start buying stocks, stocks that Citibank had either not done a good job of researching or had done a good job of researching and knew that they weren't any good and then sold to people anyways. Hmm. And so the crash among just all other things was, was probably mostly about this belief that things were going great hmm. and they were going to continue to go great forever and ever. And I think Citibank and Mitchell kind of symbolized that as much as anything. When you were reporting this, did you see any parallels between how this all played out and maybe what's going on in some of today's more unregulated markets? I do. I think that when Bitcoin uh, or just crypto generally mm. and NFT, and I don't want to just be the, the total anti-crypto guy or whatever, because, <laughs> but maybe I will be, but <laughs> I think that that's certainly an asset that no one is quite sure what it's good for. Sure. What's the practical use of crypto is an argument people have been having forever and, and are still having. A lot of unproven use cases still. Yeah, exactly. And it's fairly similar. I think that at least when crypto started going way up over the last couple of years, it was going up because people thought, oh, this is going up, so I'll buy in, right? It wasn't because they thought there was something good and there might be it, it's some value to it. I don't think that's why people were buying it, at least mm. for the most part. They were buying it because it was going up and they thought it would keep going up. Sure. And that's exactly what was happening in the 1920s. People didn't think that these stocks were great companies or these stewards of excellence or something like that. They bought the stocks because they thought, okay, this is going to go up 20 bucks and I'll sell it and make more money. Sure. And so I think that there's very much a parallel there. Well, somewhere out there, there may be a Charles E. Mitchell of the crypto world. We'll have to wait and see. <laughs> All right, everyone, that's going to do it for us today. Thanks for tuning into the Hustle Daily Show. We're a proud part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. Our editor on this show is Robert Hartwig, and our executive producer is Darren Clark. For more tech and business coverage, go check out our newsletter at thehustle.co slash email. We'll see you all next week.